You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In terms of fields where there were very common gaps favoring men, there were so many, the vast majority qualified for that. But, you know, we saw huge gaps in law schools, dentistry, even in programs where women outnumber men, such as education programs. We found for a lot of education credentials, men were out earning women. So it was really across the board. Growing wealth while supporting your family, it isn't easy, but with a well-crafted plan, you can take on anything. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Juggling finances can be overwhelming, but it's possible to find a better balance. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. So we are going to dive into one of my least favorite topics today, the gender wage gap. Yeah, 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 we've made some progress. But women still earn an average of 83 cents for every dollar a man makes. And that's the average woman. The gap is even greater for women of color. And by some estimations, the pandemic set back our progress towards closing the gap by two decades. Look, women have been demanding equal pay for equal work for more than a century, yet there are still debates on whether or not the gap even really exists. According to a poll by the Global Institute of Women's Leadership, one in five men Why is this not surprising? One in five men think that reports about the gender pay gap are quote-unquote fake news. (sighs) The truth is that the pay gap is complicated. There are a thousand and one different and interconnected reasons that it exists. You have to look at race, culture, age, education, industry, and so much more. And solving it requires us to address all of these different causes. We are still discovering new information about it, even in 2022. Just this past August, a team of reporters at the Wall Street Journal found that the gender wage gap starts at the very beginning of women's careers. Their study tracked 1.7 million college graduates from 2000 thousand different universities. In other words, this was a really big sample. It tracked them for three years after they graduated. And what they found was that the men who got the same degrees from the same schools earned more than their female classmates nearly 75% of the time. This brand new data, which by the way, makes me want to vomit and probably makes you want to vomit as well about the gender pay gap is just astonishing and frustrating and maddening. And that's why we are going to talk about what we can do about it. We've got one of the authors from the study here with us today to talk about what she found, why it's important, and what it means for women entering the workforce. Lauren Weber is a Wall Street Journal reporter. She writes about employment and workplace issues. Her wonderful stories explore the labor market, compensation, the relationship between employers and workers, the intersection between the economy and companies' decisions. She's also been a reporter at Newsday and Reuters. Lauren, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I want to get right into the data. So tell me a little bit about where this came from. Who was the study looking at? How did your team actually compare the salaries of men and women across these different industries and different levels of education? So the data actually comes from the Department of Education, which used federal tax data, which is you know obviously highly reliable. This is people reporting their taxes. They were trying to determine how did men and women fare after graduating from either undergraduate with a bachelor's degree or graduate programs. They looked at the data one year out from graduation and three years out from graduation. So they were looking at 
graduates of the classes of 2015 and 2016 and how they did in 2018 and 2019. And like you said, they looked at 2,000 different universities, but they were looking at individual programs. So really they were comparing outcomes for a total of 11,300 specific programs at 2,000 universities. What I like about this is that it is so broad. Right. I mean, I've often pulled out, I carry around certain statistics in my back pocket and remember them. And one of the ones that I often rely on is this finding on newly minted male and female doctors and how their salaries diverge. And I like it because it is an apples to apples comparison. But the fact that this apples to apples comparison is across so many different disciplines and programs is really striking. So what were your biggest takeaways from the sample, from the research? First of all, I should add that the data is for people who were receiving federal student aid or federal loans. So it's not every single student graduating from these programs. It's specifically people who received federal aid. I would say the major takeaway and what was really striking and what led us to decide to do a really big story around this was that we were surprised to see how large some of these gaps were. I mean, one of the now I would say myths about the pay gap is that gender pay gaps set in when women start to have children because then they start to take breaks from the workforce. They might be out for a few months for maternity leave. They might decide to take a few years out from the workforce to raise young children. And there's a popular notion that that's why women end up behind when it mm -hmm. comes to earnings. What this data showed was that those pay gaps set in long before many women are having children or even considering it. So we wanted to really get into why that was the case. Where were the gaps the biggest? And how big were they? So it was really widespread. I mean, the education department looked at 11,300 different programs. And at 75% of those programs, there was a pay gap favoring men. And when there were pay gaps favoring men, for the most part, or in many cases, they were substantial. Obviously, 25% of those programs, there was a pay gap favoring women. And you don't want a pay gap favoring anyone to say favor is sort of a strange way to say it. But in very few cases, you find like total parity. So in 25% of those cases, women were actually being paid more. And we were, these were looking at median salaries. So it's obviously not every individual. But in the programs where women were being paid more, the gaps were quite narrow. I think they were generally, you know, 5%, 6%, rarely larger than that. Whereas in programs where men were being paid more, we found some programs where men were getting paid 50% more than women, 40% more than women. And this is for the exact same credential. Like you said, this is about an apples to apples comparison. It's really hard to find data that really gives you an apples to apples comparison. These are people with the same educational background, same credential. And some of those gaps were really enormous, 30%, 40%, 50%. The majority were, you know, maybe closer to 20%, 10%, but still substantial. So as you looked at the fields and as you broke it down, I mean, what were the fields where the pay gaps were the greatest? And were there any sort of groups of careers where women were likely to do better? Well, we did look at, you know, maybe some of the most popular majors, like the top 20 most popular majors. And there were a few where women did do better. So one example was communication and media studies. Women do slightly better. I believe in English programs with an English bachelor's degree, women do slightly better. These were, again, the exceptions. And in terms of fields where there were very common gaps favoring men, I mean, there were so many, the vast majority qualified for that. But, you know, we saw huge gaps in law schools, dentistry, even in programs where women outnumber men, such as education programs. We found for a lot of education credentials, men were out earning women. So it was really across the board. So I have done enough research in my journalistic life, enough studies of polling and that sort of thing, that I know what the big frustration is with data 
right? The big frustration is with data is that it doesn't tell you why. It doesn't really dig into the numbers and you see a 30% difference and you don't know why. And that's when you have to put on your reporter's hat and go digging to find the why. So when you went to look for it, what did you learn? So that was really the heart of our reporting because, you know, we could have just done a story with the numbers and the numbers are quite shocking in a lot of cases, but we wouldn't have been really doing a service to our readers to just leave those out there without trying to get into the heart of it. So this is where we really started talking to graduates from the programs and career advisors and others. There is no simple explanation, of course, (laughs) you know, and we found a wide range of reasons for these gaps. I'll go through some of them. And, you know, it won't surprise you to hear that some of them are very subtle and very hard to pin down. The big question when you look at this data is how much of this is discrimination? You know, because that's really where, you know, you can really work to make changes and to fix problems and address things. And you won't be surprised to hear that there are very few women who go into a job interview are offered a job and said, but by the way, we're going to pay you 25% less than the guy we just hired who just graduated from the same program as you. So, you know, those kinds of examples of outright discrimination are very hard to sort of ferret out. And I will say we talked to some women who had what we would describe as pretty clear-cut cases of discrimination. One problem we had in writing about those stories was we made a decision or to not include off-the-record sources or anonymous sources. And a young woman starting her career is not going to want to go public with a lot of this. There was one story that kind of haunts me of a woman who told me her own tale. And when I said, you know, would you consider filing a lawsuit or telling your story in the Wall Street Journal, she said it would be career suicide. So I want to say up front that even though our story doesn't get into any of those examples of discrimination. It wasn't because we didn't find them. It was because women, for very good reasons, are afraid to basically get themselves blacklisted or some jeopardize their careers when they're just a few years out of school, not surprisingly. How common were they? I mean, if you were looking at the overall body of reporting that you did, were you surprised at the level of blatant discrimination? And did you find it not just across gender lines, but across racial lines? A good point. Um, That was the case. At least one of the situations I'm speaking about was a woman of color. And, you know, in terms of how common, it wasn't very common. Those were fairly isolated. And I do think that's kind of the case in more broadly. I mean, it certainly happens. I think it's more common than we realize. I will say, you know, for our reporting, we were identifying programs that we wanted to focus on based on the size of the pay gap that the data showed. And then we were just reaching out to as many graduates from those programs as we possibly could. So it was, you know, certainly not, you know, we had a pretty good hit rate, I would say, of people who were willing to talk to us, but certainly not by any means comprehensive. So I have a feeling there were a lot more cases out there that we just didn't hear about because we couldn't talk to thousands of people. To follow up on that, besides the blatant discrimination, what were the other underlying causes that you found? So this is where it gets into some more subtle issues. And also, so much of it has to do with just the broader culture and society that we live in, and the way that the messages girls receive from childhood. And of course, Boys also receive messages from childhood about what is a boy and, you know, what are the kinds of occupations you might think about for your life and, you know, what paths are open to you. So it's not like only girls receive that kind of messaging, but I would say girls receive a lot of messaging that ends up affecting their lifetime earnings. And so some examples of that. There are very subtle ways that people steer women in a way that men are not steered. So one of the programs we looked at was petroleum engineering, where in four out of five undergraduate programs, men were being paid more than women and sometimes significantly. So we looked at one program from the University of Houston where there was a pretty large gap and spoke to a bunch of women who had graduated from the programs. Petroleum engineering is one of the highest paid undergraduate majors. You graduate with that degree and you have a some fairly lucrative paths you can go down. Well, 
those jobs tend to be either oil field jobs where you're, you know, out in the field or you're maybe a business analyst and you're behind a desk. A few women that we spoke to were told by interviewers, oh, you know, an oil field job, it's really long hours, you don't get much too much time off. One of them was told you won't be able to wear your high heels because she probably worn high heels to the interview. She was told you won't be able to wear your high heels in the field. You know, that's not, I mean, is that discrimination or is that just kind of uh, sort of steering somebody in a certain way or making certain assumptions about what someone wants? And often those assumptions are based on stereotypes. And well, it turns out oil field jobs are, they pay better, they give you much better experience, they set you up for a better career. And several of the women we sp- spoke to were like, no, I, I want to get messy. I want to get dirty. I want to put on my boots and be out there with the roustabouts and get that kind of experience. So, you know, as you can imagine, men are probably not getting those same questions or or those same comments, you know, oh, you won't have much time off. The assumption there being like, well, what if you want to have a kid or you want to have, you know, work-life balance? There's some interesting academic research that shows when women and men ask for career advice from professionals, you know, people who have, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years older than them, women get a lot of unsolicited comments about work-life balance men get far fewer of those. Why does that not surprise me at all? Right. Right. I can totally see that. Your report also points to universities, actually, as an area where unconscious bias contributes to the pay gap. I mean, what role do college advisors and career services have in all of this, and what should they be doing differently? I think that's a great question. And when we would go to some of the career advisors at some of the programs that we wrote about, you know, and say, hey, are you aware of this gap from the program, from your law school or your undergraduate programs? And often they would say, well, it's not our job to track what people are doing after school, after college, after they graduate. It's not our job. So that's kind of a way that they sort of wash their hands of this issue or, or don't have to address it. Now, you know, and some of them said, well, we don't, we can't control what employers are paying. And that's absolutely true. Although I suppose if they wanted to really do some due diligence, they could only allow campus recruiting from companies that can demonstrate there's no pay grab at our company. So what the school's responsibility is, is a good question. I think part of it is just educating their students, you know, so saying, if you go down this path, here's what this data discovers is the median earnings for doing this. Also negotiation, teaching negotiation skills, There's research, and we found this in our reporting as well. Women don't tend to negotiate as hard as men for that first salary or even beyond the first salary. I want to put a pin in that thought, and I want to come back and talk about negotiation because it's a big ball of wax. We do talk about it often on this show. In fact, we just did a a terrific interview with a professor who teaches negotiation at Wharton. I want to go and just sit in on that class because I think it's a life skill that even at 57 years old, I could definitely use. But before we do that, let's talk about our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. When it comes to raising kids and caring for aging parents and planning for retirement. It is a whole lot to manage, especially when you are just trying to grow your wealth at the exact same time. If you visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney, you can schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor and you'll learn strategic ways to help meet all of these different financial obligations, all while remaining focused on your own needs and your own dreams. With a well-crafted plan, you'll be a lot more ready for life's competing priorities. So schedule your free appointment today at planefe.com slash hermoney. I am talking with Lauren Weber. She's a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, which you all know is one of my must-reads every single day. We are talking about the gender pay gap and how her reporting really highlighted the fact that it just starts at the very beginning of a woman's career. So negotiating is, it's a little bit of a hot topic, right? Women get blamed a lot for not negotiating, for not asking. And there's been a lot of information, a lot of research that goes back and forth and says, you know, yeah, we do ask, but when we ask, we get penalized for asking too. 
So where did you land with all of the digging that you did and coming out of this story? What's your feeling about the appropriate way in which to negotiate, especially for a young woman coming out of school? Yeah, unfortunately, our reporting and research found the same thing. It's really a catch-22 for women. Either they don't negotiate hard enough and then end up with a lower salary and also being told, oh, you didn't negotiate hard enough. And then you get penalized if you do, considered too aggressive, too demanding, entitled, you know, all of those kinds of things. So it is a really, you know, it's a tightrope that women are forced to walk in a lot of ways. That said, you're not going to get ahead if you don't do that. You know, unfortunately, you're, you're forced into this position of having to figure out how to do that in a way that's not going to be threatening and still you're going to be likable and all that. And I don't know what the real answer for that is, but what I would say is do your research. And so that at least you go in knowing what you should be asking for and knowing what you're worth. There's a woman in our story who talks about the fact that she requested a a salary increase at her current job and the company gave it to her without even you know, batting an eye. They just gave her what she asked for. That's an indication you're probably not asking for enough, unfortunately. Unfortunately, you don't necessarily know that until you put in the ask. So, I mean, when I speak to young women just, you know, about careers or, or anything, my number one advice is take yourself seriously. Like, really, I see a lot of young women not taking themselves seriously and taking their value seriously and their skills seriously. So, in order to do that, part of that is do your research. And, you know, I'm a big believer in pay transparency. I think it's a, there are certain ways we have, you know, some some places are experimenting with laws around that, like um, New York City is soon going to start requiring employers to list pay ranges on their job description. So that's one piece of it. But it's also about talking to people, talking to colleagues. I find personally women are far more likely to share their salary with each other than men are willing to you know, bring that up or share their salary. But in my own personal experience, you get a lot further when you know what the men are making than when you just know what the women are making. So you know, anything that can be done towards that is helpful. From your personal experience, any advice for getting a handle on what the men are making? I mean, we had Hannah Williams on this show a couple of months ago. She's the young woman who has a a very popular show called Salary Transparent Street, where she just goes to people on street corners and asks them how much they're making and what they do. And they tell her, I have a 25-year-old daughter in the workforce, and she knows what all of her friends are making. And they know what she's making. And this is just information that they share on a regular basis. I don't know if they share it with their guy friends as much. And I I wonder, you know, if you found any successful strategies for learning, are your male colleagues at the journal paid the same as the women who are doing the same jobs? So I'm in the fortunate position that we have a union here. And so through the union, some of that information is public. So I can request my salary comps and find out, you know, for other reporters living in the New York City area with a comparable level of experience, which you know, they use age as a proxy for that same title, I get access to that. And that's been enormously helpful in my own personal experience. Most workers in America don't have access to that information and are not represented by a union. But, you know, I think men really need, this is one area where men really need to step up and be allies. I don't know if that means going up to their female colleagues and saying, hey, do you want to know what I make? But maybe men initiating some more of those conversations would be nice. You know, I find women are, like I said, very open to talking to their female peers, it's a little bit more uncomfortable, maybe because of just a sense of who do we share personal information with, maybe to ask some men. But I would say don't be shy. And if a man doesn't want to tell you, he won't tell you. If you know, Same thing with a woman. She, she won't tell you if she doesn't want to. But you know, you got to get that kind of information if you can. And there are often whisper networks around this sort of thing. Or, you know, at Google, I think there were, it was Google that had a salary spreadsheet where people could populate it anonymously, but give their title. So, you know, you can also try to start something like that at your organization. I'm sure HR is not a big fan of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure they're not. I think HR has had to come along 
on this curve and really understand, no, it's not illegal to share how much you make with your colleague. No, it's not wrong to share how much you make with your colleagues. Do you think that this move toward unionization that we're seeing in this country, I mean, it's a grassroots sort of a move at this point, but do you think it will be helpful and it will catch on more than it already has? I mean, it's happening in fairly specific pockets, I would say. I mean, obviously, Amazon and Starbucks are probably two of the biggest stories around unionization. I think you're also seeing in a lot of newsrooms, interestingly, media companies are seeing it. But these, you know, for that, that's relatively small numbers. The long-term trend, of course, is for lower and lower, you know, numbers of Americans being part of a union. And where you do see it, you see a lot of union activity, but often in very small establishments. So even, you know, whereas it used to be that a Ford plant or, you know, like a manufacturing plant might have many hundreds of workers or a few thousand workers. And in one fell swoop, you know, you'd get a large chunk of people becoming organizing to join a union. You know, at the Starbucks stores, we're seeing it's maybe 15 people, 20 people, 25. So it's much smaller numbers. So... You know, and of course, some of this is driven by the fact that right now there are labor shortages and people are overworked and burnt out and feel that they have some leverage. What will be really interesting to see is, you know, as the economy changes and maybe there's a little more equilibrium in the labor market, it'll be interesting to see if that activity continues. And I wanted to say one more thing about negotiation. I think that any employer should be able to justify someone's salary, should be able to explain clearly, here's why you earn what you earn. You know, and especially if you come in knowing what other people at your level are making, HR or an employer should be able to say, you know, or your or your manager should be able to say, explain why you're making less than somebody else doing the same job or why you're making more, or here's how you can get to that point. So I think it's very important that organizations be able to explain and justify how every person is paid. And if they can't do that, that signals a problem internally. And if they're not in the habit of doing it, how would you suggest they use your reporting, use your research, use databases like this to get themselves on the right track? Do you mean employers? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, more and more companies are doing their own internal pay equity studies, you know, and I think that's a really good sign. They are, in most cases, hiring consultants who's, you know, the client is the company. And I worry a little bit about that being a bit of a conflict of interest because obviously the consulting companies want to maintain those relationships. So I don't know what the answer to that is because the company is always going to be the client in this case. But I think you want to make sure that it's a very rigorous study and that you can explain the methodology to anybody who asks. As you step back from this particular data set, and look at women throughout the arc of their careers striving for pay equity, you know, striving to earn a decent living for themselves and their families to get to financial security. Are there other pieces of advice that you think are important for them to just keep with them along the way? Yeah, I and this is a this is one of the other explanations that we found for the pay gap. There's a couple others that I would love to get into, two more specifically. So, one of them relates to this question. And one of the things we discovered was there is a confidence gap. I mean, there's a lot that has been written about the confidence gap between men and women, but one example that showed up in our reporting, we looked at dentistry programs because we wanted to look at it at a degree where there's really very few paths you can take. If you're going to graduate with a DDS, you're going to be practicing dentistry. Um, We hope. Yeah, because it's a lot of school to just go through dentistry school, sit there for six years, and then say, I really don't want to be a dentist. Exactly. So, you know, presumably there shouldn't be much of a pay gap between all these people who come out of school and take jobs as dentists. And we looked at this one program. It was the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. And there was a very large gap. It was $140,000 median salary for men three years after graduation and $103,000 for women three years out after graduation. That's $37,000 difference. And when we started making calls and talking to people, what we found was that 
men were much more likely to come out of the program and immediately start their own practice, which is a much more lucrative path than, say, working for another dentistry practice or maybe doing a residency. Whereas the women we spoke to, almost all of them had done a, a residency. You know, almost all of them said, I felt I needed more experience before I launched my own practice. And from almost everyone, the goal is to start your own practice. Almost every single woman we spoke to said, I felt I needed more experience. It wasn't because their grades were lower. It wasn't because they had any difference in their schooling. It was the internal sense, like, I'm not quite ready. I'm not quite prepared. Whereas the men came, were coming out, you know, not every single one of them, but were much more likely to take out a half million dollar loan, buy a practice or start their own and, you know, get going on that. That was really fascinating to me. Now, what do you do to solve that problem? I'm not entirely sure. This is about, you know, what it means to be female in America or probably almost anywhere, you know, and this is a lot about messaging and, you know, things that start from the, you know, from childhood. I'm not sure what the answer is to that. Do you think motherhood was at play in that example at all either? I'm thinking about the age of the women, right? And so if you go to college, right, you come out, you're 22, let's say you go straight into dental school, right? You come out, you're 28. At this point, if you're in a relationship, you're not just thinking about a practice. You're thinking about, well, if I want to have kids by the time I'm 35 and all of a sudden life starts to get into these numbers. Did you think about the motherhood penalty at all as well? That was more of a factor, I would say, for programs like this rather than undergraduate programs, because some of the women did have kids even once they started dental school. Some came to it later in life or, you know, and like you said, were or maybe were in their late 20s or early 30s or mid 30s when they graduated with their dental degree. But even for them, the goal was to start a dental practice, and many of them did by the time we spoke to them. You know, so it wasn't like it had curbed their career ambitions. It was still that same issue of, I'm not ready, I need more preparation. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Oh, and frustrating, right? Yes. Because you want to take these women and just say, look at you, you got all A's in your dental program, you are a rock star student, you know, as much as this guy does, just go for it, you know, just go for it. Yes. And in fact, one of the graduates that I spoke to was teaching dentistry at a different school. So it was interesting to hear her perspective because she's now a professor and she sees this with her students that her, she, she was like, I have all these incredible female students who are amazing dentists and yet they're not as confident as, you know, her male students. What was the third factor? You said there were two more that you wanted to talk about. What's the last one? Yeah. So, you know, some of this is, you know, this is not all, you know, we didn't discover there were so many like nefarious differences. And, you know, we live in a sexist society, although that's part of, I think, some of the internal messaging, you know, that does affect women's decisions and men's decisions, too. One interesting case we looked at was law school. So we looked at the University of Michigan Law School. And for men, three years after graduation, the median salary for the years that the education department looked at, it was 165000 For women, it was 120000 Massive difference. Now, though, by and large, the number one contributor to that was that women were much more likely to choose public interest law. Men were much more likely to go into corporate law firms. And obviously, that's a much more high-paying job. So, you know, I talked to a bunch of women who became public defenders, and some of them were making $50,000, $60,000. One made $86,000, which I think was the most of anybody in, who went in that direction. You know, whereas starting salaries at some of the big law firms can are $170,000, $190,000. So, you know, these were women who were choosing passion over the higher paycheck. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No, I mean, it's great that people have the freedom to do what they want and follow those passions. And we spoke to the head of career services, I think, at the University of Michigan Law School. And he said, it's not my job to steer someone in a particular direction. You know, I'm not doing my job if I'm telling people, well, you really do need to go into, a woman, you need to go into corporate law because otherwise you're gonna be behind money-wise. But, you know, we were really, interested in that example because how much of that is, you know, is it a good thing that women feel they have more freedom to choose 
something they love? Is there a reason men don't see that as the path? You know, obviously some men go into public interest law, but is there a reason fewer men see that as the path they want? Is there something about women feeling public service, you know, sort of being in a helping type of job is more common? There's some evidence of that, that women are more likely to choose kind of helping professions, whether that's social work or education or becoming a public defender rather than a white shoe law, you know, corporate lawyer. In a couple of the cases, I spoke to women who met their spouses at law school and their spouses, their husbands were going into those corporate law jobs. So that also gave them a financial cushion to then be able to do what they wanted. So that's a situation where like, well, maybe those men would have been happier to go into public interest law, but you know, something about the expectations of being a breadwinner. So again, it was, some of this is really choice, but then you have to ask yourself like, well, how much is choice when you live in a, we're all being affected by social norms and expectations. It's fascinating. What's the follow-up story that you want to write? I mean, it would be very interesting if the education department looked at this same cohort of people 10 years after graduation. And it would be fascinating to see where have the gaps narrowed, where have the gaps increased, and if we could try to understand some of the explanations behind that. I think you should tee that up for them. (laughs) Lauren Weber from the Wall Street Journal, thank you so much. Where can our listeners follow you? The best place to find me is probably on Twitter, and my handle is at Lauren Weber, WSJ, Weber with one B. Thank you so much for being here today. This was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. And before we dive into our mailbag, let me just remind everybody that Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU, of course, one of the nation's fastest growing credit unions. And BCU helps members make smart financial decisions by offering them the products, the services, the caring support that they need for whatever stage of life they're in. You can find out if you're eligible to join BCU by visiting bcu.org. Catherine Tuggle joins me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. Well, I have to say, I felt like we had discussed almost everything with the gender wage gap until now. And a lot of this new data was really, really interesting. Yeah, I love when reporters, good reporters, because as we know, there are both kinds, but I love when good reporters get their hands on a really nice data set and then go on the hunt for the examples that bring that data set to life. Right. And the dentistry example is the one that's going to stay with me. The fact that women just don't have the confidence to strike out on their own immediately after school. Because how many times have we heard this, right? I mean, it's not just dentistry. It's starting your own business. It's asking for a promotion or going for a promotion. It's that awful statistic about how when men apply for jobs, they apply for jobs for which they don't have half the criteria that is being asked for, and they go for it anyway, and women wait until they have all of it, right? And I know I'm paraphrasing there, but this is all the same problem. We live in this world where you really are expected to fake it till you make it, right? People are rewarded for that fake it till you make it attitude. And people coming out of dentistry school, they're not faking it. They, you know, I'm going to the dentist tomorrow morning for a cleaning. I can promise you my dentist is not faking it. She knows exactly what she's doing. Yeah. I mean, I was also really intrigued by the lower salaries for female attorneys. And it made me think, in addition to the motherhood penalty, maybe there's an altruism penalty for women, right? Like women who are trying to do good, who are going into fields like elementary education and pro bono law work, they're not going to make a lot, but that's because they're good people. So it's like, it's so frustrating. Which is not to say that people who go into corporate law are not good people, right? right? I mean, I remember hearing a woman who does what I do, another financial expert, giving a talk at one point, and she was defending the fact that she earns good money and that she goes out with the intention of earning good money. And she said, when I earn well, I can give 
well, right? I then she has the ability to support the causes that she believes in, and that's that's just a, another way to look at it, right? If you are a person who feels like you want to give back, there are many ways to do it, and doing work that you love when it's rewarding for you, that's absolutely one of them. But you can also do it in other ways. Yeah. I know we've got some questions to dig into, so let's get to them. Yeah, our first question today comes to us from Melissa J. from Kansas City. She writes, Hi, Jean and the Harmony team. I am a longtime listener. I love the podcast. Can you please advise on a couple of questions? Number one, the retirement savings benchmarks that are out there seem geared toward an old-fashioned career style of slow, steady, expected pay increases over time. My salary jumped significantly in the last three years due to promotions and then changing employers. I switched jobs last year and received a 30% pay increase. If I look at the benchmark for where a 50-year-old should be, six times my current salary, I feel behind, although I'm currently maxing out my 401k, including catch-up contributions. In addition, my husband went from a $95,000 salary three years ago to $170,000 this year, and he's maxing out his 401k too. Can you share some advice regarding how to view those benchmarks for those of us who suddenly have significantly higher salaries? I've been saving methodically my entire working career, but the benchmarks make me feel behind when using my new higher salary in the calculation. Melissa, this is such a good point. It's a really good point. And this is, I think, the reason that we call them benchmarks and that it's not a steady trajectory of this is how much you should have at 30 and 31 and 32 and 33, because that would drive us insane. These were developed, and let me just back out for anybody who doesn't know what the benchmarks are. These benchmarks were developed by Fidelity Investments. They basically state that you should aim to have one times your salary, current salary, by the time you hit age 30, three times at age 40, six times at age 50, eight times at age 60, and 10 times by the time you retire. They are based on people who earn from $50,000 a year to $300,000 a year, and they are meant to assure you that you'll be able to replace about 80% of your pre-retirement income when you combine your own nest egg with Social Security over a 30-year period. So that's what we're talking about here. The other thing about these benchmarks is that if you do have that steady career that goes from 20 to 30 to 40 to 50, and you save about 15% of your money year in and year out, including matching contributions, you should hit the benchmarks. But I get what it's like for a salary to jump over time. I mean, in my first couple of jobs, I went from making $11,000 a year to $24,000 a year to $45,000 a year, back to $20,000 a year. And then I jumped up to like $100,000 a year. So, you know, it was all over the place and it can drive you kind of crazy if you're trying to save in any sort of a measured way. You are at this point probably playing catch up and you're playing catch up if you want to continue to live in retirement at that level of a higher salary. So the other thing that happens when our earnings jump is that for most of us, unless we're actively living by FIRE principles, our standard of living also jumps. We rent a more expensive apartment. We buy a slightly bigger house. We go on two vacations a year instead of one vacation a year. We eat in nicer restaurants and we like that. And so as you are looking at what you need for retirement, the other question is, how are you going to live, right? If you're going to live back at that level of salary before you got that 30% pay increase, then you're probably fine. Then you don't have to worry about the fact that your savings have bumped up. And that, in fact, could put you on a trajectory to hit 10 times your benchmark before you get to retirement age. So that's the real question that you have to ask yourself. 
how do you intend to live in retirement? Do you intend to live on that lower salary or do you intend to live on that higher salary? And if you intend to live on the higher salary, then the thing to do beyond maxing out your 401k and making the catch-up contributions, which is great, is to look at the other places where you may be able to heavy up on retirement savings. If you've got access to an HSA, that's the first one I'd look at because the treatment of that account for tax purposes is very much like a 401k. And if you can pay for your healthcare expenses out of current cash flow, that can give you the ability to sock a lot more away for retirement. The other thing that I would look at is just a discretionary brokerage account where you invest some money that you've already paid taxes on, which is great because when you pull money out of that account, you're not going to have to pay taxes in retirement. It works kind of like a Roth for those purposes. And you just save whatever else you can save there. If you haven't done the work of looking at what your life in retirement is likely to look at, and I know that could very well change, if you haven't sat down with a financial advisor, it sounds to me like you are a really good candidate to do that. Fantastic advice. Thank you, Jean. Sure. Our next question today comes to us from Ellen. She writes, Hi, Jean. I was divorced in 2018 after 37 years of marriage. My ex enjoyed investing and money managing I did not. He was very good at it. Through the divorce settlement, I have 50% of the assets. I receive a monthly payment from a company my ex formerly worked for. I also have monthly income from two IRAs that come from money my mom left to me, and I'm receiving monthly alimony. I worked with a certified financial planner who works for my bank and for an affiliated large investment company. My financial planner has been great at helping me to understand why we do what we do with my money, and my accounts have grown well. Like everyone else, I've taken a hit in the current economy, but I'm taking a long-term approach and not panicking. My only question is this. How do you know if the fees you're paying for your investments are too high or just right? Thanks so much for your help. Um, This is a great question, and it's great, Ellen, because... Financial advisors get paid in so many different ways. Some of them take a fee on the investment itself, a commission for actually selling it to you. Some of them, many of them these days, charge you a fee for what they call AUM, assets under management. That's the total sum of what they're managing for you. And then there are those fee-only advisors who will charge you a fee for the plan or even a monthly subscription fee. In general, you wanna try to keep the total cost you're paying around 1% of the value of your investments per year. Now, I wanna qualify that just a little bit because in general, the more assets you have with an advisor, the lower the fee, you are going to be charged. So as you accumulate more money, it is not uncommon for that fee to slide down below 1%. So I started at about 1% with my advisor many, many years ago. But as I've accumulated more assets, the fee has dropped. And today it's about 65 basis points. So that's a substantial savings on a year to year basis, but my advisor is making it up on the volume. If you are starting with a smaller pool of assets, not uncommon for you to be charged a little bit over 1%. And If you love your advisor and the service that you're getting, then I think that that's okay, particularly if they're advising you on additional parts of your life. So I'm thinking particularly of our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines, and sometimes based on the size of the portfolio, Edelman does charge a little bit more than 1%, but you have access through them to estate planning attorneys who will give you some advice and they work with a team of tax advisors. And so I think you have to weigh what you're getting in terms of what you are paying for. I hope that that is a good answer for you. And I also just wanted to say, because I thought your question was going in a slightly different direction, 
If you are interested in learning more about your underlying investments, the stocks and the funds that you hold in your portfolio, join us for Investing Fix. Let us know that you want to participate. I'm happy to give you a free month and let you try it out and see if it's for you. I was divorced too, and I know sometimes it just takes a little while to get your financial footing, but it sounds like you are doing a great great job. And by the way, if you're listening to this and you have more questions, not about investing in particular, but about budgeting or saving for retirement, we've got another coaching program at Her Money. It's called Finance Fix, and it can help you get your finances in order. It's an eight-week program where you worked with a trained financial coach to build good money habits, to get a handle on where your money is actually going, to save more, spend a little less, pay down some debt if you have debt. And you do it with a group of women who are learning with you and supporting you every step of the way. I also drop in from time to time. Our next session is starting on November 3rd. You can sign up at financefix.com and I hope to see you there. Catherine, thanks so much for the mailbag. Good questions this week. Thank you, Jean. Love your advice as always. Thanks. And in today's Thrive, let's talk about how much it really costs to be a wedding guest. 2022, it's been a huge year for weddings since so many couples pushed back their wedding dates in 2020 and 2021. They are all now saying, I do this year along with those couples who just got engaged. And chances are you've got more than a few invites on your fridge, but the cost of attending one wedding after another, it adds up really fast. At Her Money, we broke down the expenses that you should look out for as a wedding guest, and we give you some really good advice on how to save. Just a few points here. First of all, you should know upfront that the total cost of attending a wedding and this is if you're traveling, it hovers around $1,500. That's about two to $500 for flights, 250 for hotels, 100 for transportation, 100 to 300 for gifts. And if you're a bridesmaid, yeah, just set aside another 300 more for clothes and hair and makeup. If you're a close friend of the couple, you may even spend more for the bachelorette party or engagement party or shower, which could run you anywhere from a few hundred to a couple thousand extra dollars. One of the easiest ways to save on expenses is to stick with those wedding outfits that are already in your closet. Believe me, I know Insta, but most people will not remember exactly what you wear. So don't feel pressure to buy something new for every wedding. And while you're figuring out travel plans, reach out to other guests to see if you can share costs. If it's cheaper to drive, then fly, organize a road trip. You can take turns driving and split gas and parking and everyone ends up with a happier wallet. The same strategy goes for finding a place to stay. Splitting an Airbnb with friends or family, much, much cheaper than a couple of nights in a hotel. And when it comes to buying a wedding gift that doesn't break the bank, the most important thing to remember is to be early. If the couple has a registry, pick a present that fits your budget or team up with other guests for a bigger group gift. Finally, you should know it's okay to say no to a wedding invite if you just can't make the finances work, if you're not in the wedding party. Think about whether you consider the couple to be on your top 10 friends list. If not, it might be okay to skip. Don't be afraid. Send a gift and celebrate after the fact. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Lauren Weber for giving us a new look at the gender pay gap and what we can do about it. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk soon. Thank you.